In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. On this 15th anniversary of 9-11, it's very hard for us to remember that we are supposed to love everyone, even our enemies. It seems impossibly hard. To help us cope with the feelings we have today, I do want to commend to you a homily that was preached by Father Franklin McAfee at Arlington on September 15, 2001. At a funeral mass for Barbara Olson, who was at the time a well-known author and commentator who was on American Airlines Flight 77 when it crashed into the Pentagon. Again, that's a homily by Father Franklin McAfee. I'm sure you can find it on the internet. As I said, it seems impossibly hard to remember that we are supposed to love everyone. But thankfully, there are some among us who remind us of this fact. I preached an ordination sermon on June 4th of this year from one of the newest priests of the diocese, Pamela Hyde who is now serving in Green Valley. In preparation for that sermon, I don't know, something inspired me to call her on the telephone and ask her privately about the feelings and the convictions that had grown in her in the six months leading to her ordination. I wondered what seemed most important to her at that moment, in that magical time just before the most awesome moment of ordination. She answered that what we are called to is love. Living the gospel is about loving God and loving neighbor, she said, and everyone is my neighbor. And that really is less about what we are doing than who we are being. Love is something that we must embody with our whole being, she said. I thought about the three years she had just completed at Yale Divinity School, a very rigorous academic experience, very expensive as well. And I thought to myself, wow, she just gave me an A answer. That was an A answer in my book. Pamela is truly ready for ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. Ministry starts with the understanding of how much God loves us. It is not possible to overemphasize God's love for us, and there are signs of it everywhere. But here's the thing. In hearing the parables today, it's possible to think that they mostly illustrate God's love for us all and our great compassion as well, because, in fact, they do that. And, of course, We can all relate to stories about loss. I was, for example, with my family when we lost my four-year-old brother at the World's Fair in Seattle in 1962. Imagine our joy at finding this scared little boy in the midst of masses of people 
several hours later. Then there was the time, only a few years ago actually, when I learned that a passing aircraft spotted one of the cows on our family ranch stuck in a deep snow south of Flagstaff and not being able to find snowmobiles for rent or for sale anywhere near Flagstaff at the time I sent our cowboys to Heber, Arizona to buy two so they could take hay and water to the stranded animal. Those were the closest snowmobiles we could find for sale. It was a little bit, a little bit like leaving everything to go find a lost sheep. Sadly, by the time they returned to the ranch and finally, finally reached the cow with hay and with water, the animal had died. I was very upset about it because it was my job to supervise the operation of the family's ranch at that time, and I felt like a shepherd who had simply failed to recover his sheep. But my point is this. It is easy for us to relate to stories of loss and recovery. However, we need to make a closer examination of these parables, because if you listen closely, you notice that these parables use rejoicing over the recovery of what is lost to illustrate a heavenly celebration accompanying the repentance of a sinner. The parables are actually about repentance. Now, I am not saying that the parables are about repentance and not about love. The truth is, of course, these parables illustrate that God loves us all, sinners and saints alike, and perhaps not unlike the oft-repeated tenet from discussions of Christian principles of economic justice, where some argue that God has a preference for the poor, perhaps the love that God has for all of us celebrates the repentant sinner most of all. In other words, repentance is an occasion for celebration, and it does not mean that God loves the saints any less. Now, as we hear this gospel reading today, we must consider what these parables have to do with us. Well, consider what we call ourselves, disciples of Christ. The word disciple means learner. A disciple is a person who's learning from his or her teacher. A disciple is a person who is learning to be more like his or her teacher. And as we know, Jesus called his followers to repent. So, it's not surprising that today many televangelists and some preachers put an urgency on repentance. But I believe that properly understood, the celebration mentioned in the parables translates to something more like welcome home. In fact, the very next parable in Luke is the parable of the prodigal son, which, of course, was all about homecoming. We should ask ourselves how we can be a part of that welcome, because today, if Jesus' work is to get done, his disciples have to do it. We all know the truth of this, even if it is sometimes inconvenient or it seems hard. Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, so that just as people could look at Jesus and see the Father, so people can look at us and see the Son. We, Jesus' disciples, are called to put Jesus' love and compassion into practice, and we are to offer that homecoming to the lost. 
In fact, some of us are here today because we were once lost and in God's providence we were found. As a result, it should be easy for us to understand the appropriateness of tying our outreach in the name of Christ to God's celebration over the recovery of the lost. This is a tough world, and many people are hurting. They are lonely. They are afraid. They are brokenhearted. They are grieving. They have all kinds of needs. Any pastor today can look out at his or her congregation and see hurting people. And the people around us at home, at work, and at play need compassion too. Sometimes they also want and need to repent. When I was rector of the Church of the Epiphany in Flagstaff, a man who had been attending services for a few weeks came to me and said he wanted to explain to me why he was not taking communion. He said he had not received communion in 15 years. We then talked about his feelings of unworthiness, his overwhelming sense of sin. At the end of our time together, I told him the church is a home for sinners and asked him to come to the communion rail the next Sunday to receive the body and blood of Christ. I also asked him if he would consent to let me introduce him to the congregation during the time for announcements and to tell just a little bit of his story. He agreed. So when I did that the next Sunday, the whole congregation, of course, was prompted into a welcoming spirit. It was really wonderful. But what I remember is the tears flowed from my eyes when I looked into his eyes and said, Welcome home. He was, by the way, present at services every Sunday after that. I mention this story because I think we need to see that we're all a part of the body of Christ that is in a position to welcome our neighbors into this place. At 11.15 today, as you know from the announcements in the bulletin, I will address our last convention's theme of who is our neighbor, presenting some important information in the auditorium upstairs about demographic trends in Arizona information that will help us focus better on our neighbors. We will discuss who our neighbors are, what their needs may be, and how we can better welcome them into the fellowship of the church. And while my presentation is data-driven, I think we should also allow ourselves to wonder how many among our neighbors might be lost, how many God may be calling to repentance and for us to welcome home. In fact, there's been much written lately about why church attendance is down and why, on an average day in America, ten churches permanently close their doors. In a recent Christian Century magazine, the publisher Peter Marty wrote, often churches close simply because someone missed a window of opportunity years before. Past leadership lacked the will or the nimbleness to flex with changing neighborhood demographics. Nobody put up a basketball hoop that could have formed a beautiful bridge between the congregation and its neighbors. 
hosting after-school programs and English and second-language classes, never figured into the church board's imagination. Creative partnerships with area agencies or businesses went unexplored. Sadly, the nature of some of those opportunities is that they are fleeting. Once we've missed them, they're gone, never to return. And yet I do know Christians who would be just like the parable shepherd and make every effort to recover even one lost sheep. And that is the passion we are called to demonstrate with our evangelism and outreach today. In fact, let me illustrate the sort of passion to which today's parables call us. Much has been written lately about the tragic loss of Arizona's aid worker, Kayla Mueller, after her extended captivity with ISIS in Syria. In fact, now, of course, more people than ever know that story because of ABC's recent feature entitled The Girl Who Was Left Behind. But what is less known is the feverish activity, the feverish effort made by faithful Christians all over the world to save Kayla. Whether they thought about it or not, they worked very much in the mode of the shepherd who would leave the 99 to try to save the one. And if you saw the ABC special or you have read the newspaper accounts, you now know something about the efforts of Kayla's parents, NAU chaplain Kathleen Day, former FBI, CIA, and NSA agents, and military special teams that staged multiple raids into Syria to try to find her. But as Kathleen Day let a few of us know about what was going on long before it was public knowledge, there are others in this room today who were part of a passionate effort, a long-lasting effort to save Kayla. My own very small part was to work with the United Religions Initiative to see if we had resources within the Anglican Communion, perhaps in Jerusalem, Jordan, or Turkey, with regional influence that could help. Many people were trying to help. And of course, a profound sadness descended upon us all when we learned that Kayla was killed. Why do I share, once again, this most distressing story? Because there is no reason in the world why we shouldn't care as much about the people outside our doors as we cared about Kayla. And in fact, Kayla would say as much. As Peter Marty wrote, love your neighbor is not a metaphor. It's a commandment to love the next person we encounter as much as and as well as we happen to love ourselves. This can be a tall order for congregations more accustomed to fussing over interior traditions than knowing the lives of the people across the street. Or, what would be even worse, if our churches are among those institutions of power and influence that have become strangers to a massive social inequity and outrageous poverty and humiliation of so many of God's children, then repentance should begin here. Our need for repentance may be the one thing standing between us and our neighbors who we suspect may be lost. Lost they may be, but in fact some of us 
may be among those needing to repent as well, myself included, and I do recognize that. Now I have one more thing to say, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I just don't want to say it from here. So I'm going to scramble down these steps and speak from a position among you. In a few minutes, our deacon will call us to confession. And we will all repent of our sins. I hope you realize in the midst of your confession that sin is just a mistake that can be forgiven. And in fact, this morning you will receive absolution for your sins forever. What a wonderful, marvelous gift this is to us. And how wonderful for us that we can receive it right here, right now. By the way, welcome home. <clears throat>